0: Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Catherine Barnard. Catherine Barnard is Professor of EU Law and Employment Law at Trinity College, Cambridge. We're here, Catherine, and thank you for doing this, to talk about the Phase 2 of the so-called Brexit discussions. Uh, But before we come to Phase 2, can we talk briefly about Phase 1? Everybody seems to be under the impression that... Brexit phase one is now out of the way but there is a thing this joint committee to be set up and maybe you can explain a bit about it in a second which is supposed to oversee the implementation of the withdrawal agreement. Can you explain a bit about this joint committee and how much uh, of a potential stumbling block it might be to the progress of the phase two negotiations?
1: Phase one was the article 50 um, negotiations which concluded in the withdrawal agreement which was an international treaty, a legally binding text, Um, and one that the UK has given effect to through the 2020 legislation. But the trouble is, like all treaties, it's essentially skeletal. I mean, there's quite a lot in there, but there's still an awful lot to be sorted out on the Northern Ireland border, on what controls there may or may not be, on goods coming in from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. There's also a lot of detail to be sorted out in respect of citizens' rights over Gibraltar and over all sorts of other matters and therefore this uh, joint committee was set up and for a lot of people that sounds incredibly dull. Now of course in lots of treaties, there's provision for um, political cooperation over key matters. But this Joint Committee is going to do quite a lot of heavy lifting, particularly over really sensitive matters involving the Northern Ireland border. And what's really striking is the total absence of discussion about the Joint Committee right. and also who's going to serve on it. Right. And if you look at the 2020 Act in um, the UK, just for the pedants amongst you, that's the EU Withdrawal Agreement Act 2020, the one that... Um, rushed through Parliament in the end, right. um, which was known in its, um, in its previous life as the WAB. Um, there are a couple of clauses or sections now on the Joint Committee, but they tell you nothing apart from the fact that there will always be a minister who is sitting on these Joint Committees. Now, presumably this is a way of asserting um, taking back control. But the reality is a lot of these meetings will be highly technical, not very exciting. And I imagine that quite a lot of ministers will re- regret ever having <laughs> agreed to this section that requires them to preside over every committee. So
0: as of when this joint committee is set up and running, it'll be in operation alongside the negotiations on phase two, in effect.
1: Absolutely. And remember, not only is there that going on, but there's also going to be negotiations over trade arrangements with Japan, Australia, New Zealand, US, and of course the EU. Um, Canada said they won't roll over their existing trade deals, so there'll be negotiations there. So it's going to take up a huge amount of government time, bandwidth, to right. use the jargon, while also trying to deliver their really quite ambitious domestic <laughs> agenda. It's always been odd because. Article 50 um, has tried to divorce the divorce from the future trade negotiations and um, what you see in the text of Article 50 was it's about the divorce but with an eye to the future. And of course the Northern Ireland protocol sorting out what's going to happen about the Northern Ireland border is really actually more than an eye to a future, it is the future. Um, Because it's that which will apply in the event of a no trade deal Brexit at the end of this year. And so there's always been this rather uncomfortable um, marriage, if we can carry on in that, um, uh, using those sorts of um, metaphors, that what you're seeing is um, the problems of Article 50, which is that it's focus entirely on the divorce and the EU very strategically focused on the fact that Article 50 was about the divorce and not about the future, thus preventing the UK using money how much we owe the EU as leverage to get a better deal on the future trade negotiations. So it was genius on the part of the EU and more or less supported by the text of um, Article 50. Um, But it shows that the EU could be flexible about the divorce-future relationship divide um, when it came to the Northern Ireland border, because they put the Northern Ireland Protocol in the Article 50 text, but it's really about the future.
0: right? Well, the, the the formal start of phase two is, is about what three, two three weeks away from us now. But there's already been quite a lot uh, amount of, of posturing, should we say, by the British government and to a certain extent the EU authorities as well. Is that basically uh, early signs that t- to be expected when two sides are just trying to set out their stall in rather extreme terms? But at the same time, you could argue that it doesn't terribly augur terribly well for the conduct, not just the content, but the tone and conduct of the negotiations going forward.
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think it's in any negotiation, if I'm trying to sell you my car or my house, you know, I'm going to be pretty tough and you're going to be pretty tough. And um, and eventually we come together if there is sufficient mutual interest in you buying my house or my car. The problem is that there are very low levels of trust on both sides. And ultimately, um, Why, why do you say that? Well, it's partly because of the the language that's being used. It's partly because the EU is determined to get particularly level playing field conditions into the Um, future trade deal, and just to be clear when I'm talking about level playing field I mean um, that the EU wants the UK to continue complying with EU rules on labour standards, on environment, on consumer protection and crucially state aids. And the EU say this is absolutely an essential precondition to any trade deal because what they don't want is the UK, which is still a big beast in European terms, it is still the sixth largest economy in the world, It doesn't want a big beast sitting on its on its um, western flank undercutting EU standards so the EU is very worried about that the UK says in response well for heaven's sake we're not insisting mm. that the EU comply with our standards on mm. things like the environment and actually in some areas we are better than EU standards look about, look at our approach to single use plastics.
0: Well is that going to be a, a major sticking point going forward I mean how much sympathy do you have for the EU uh, position on level playing field or is it again just the, the Commission, as its critics uh, would say, being very technocratic and rather unimaginative and very in- inflexible.
1: Well what we do see is it's not, <clears throat> it's not just the Commission but the French are very very hot on the level playing field right. um, conditions and not just the French and indeed it may be so serious that it may eventually lead to the breakdown in the negotiations. Well certainly the withdrawal agreement is very clear that um, a request has got to be made, both sides have got to agree, it's got to be done by the end of June, and the extension can be to the transition period can be for one or two years. Now, uh, Boris Johnson made a manifesto commitment that he wouldn't ask for an extension to the transition period, and also it's now enshrined in legislation. However, there is, um, this is more binding than, le- less binding than would first appear, because with Boris Johnson having such a large majority in the um, Commons, if he wants to change his mind, he can whip um, an amending piece of legislation through. Indeed, it probably could done, be done by secondary instrument. So it would, that is not in itself an insuperable obstacle. Oh. Um, but the, the, the insuperable obstacle may well be politics, and the politics um, may say, um, absolutely not, we are not going to ask for an extension in any way, says Boris Johnson. And indeed the EU may eventually decide that if the UK won't sign up to level playing field, well, in which case we'll cut the ties and leave the UK might decide that the level playing field conditions are so serious that we won't sign up to them. And indeed, if we're looking to he- be heading for a- towards a very thin trade deal, so a trade deal just on goods, a sort of zero-zero trade deal, the UK might say the cost of having level playing field conditions is too great. Therefore, it's not so very different to having a no trade deal Brexit, therefore let's pull out of the negotiations. So it's pretty high stakes
0: stuff. Is it my imagination, it seems to me that the all the focus, especially media focus, certain academic focus and think tank focus seems to be on the trade negotiation and trade defined as trading goods to the exclusion of trade and services, point one. And point two there seems to be hardly any discussion about the need for at least a negotiation about cooperation in other areas beyond trade and is that a fair uh, reflection or am I missing something?
1: No I think you're absolutely right and I think it's really problematic that trade in this country is conceived solely in terms of goods. Now don't get me wrong, manufacturing is a really important part of our economy, it's probably about 11-12% of our economy, counts for to two and a half a million or so jobs. So it's not to be sniffed at. But on the other hand, trade and services mm. is 70-80% of the economy, depending on how you count it. Financial services it's itself counts for about 7-8% of um, the economy. And so this focus on goods probably quite understandable because it's much easier to hmm. get your head round yeah. um, the sale of widgets yes. you know, from Products. one country to uh, another, um, but actually it rather misses the point. And of course from the EU and the UK's point of view, issues about f- um, foreign and security policy, major issues, I mean terrorism hasn't gone away. Um, And also um, cooperation in respect of criminal matters. Again, really important. Loss of access to the um, European arrest warrant will be really quite serious for the UK.
0: Well, maybe as a segue to that, Catherine can ask you uh, what, what they call the jargon, the governance of the negotiation. In other words, the rules of the game for, for the conduct of the negotiation, whether it covers just trade, trading goods, maybe other aspects, but also the the, the broader geopolitical picture, if you like. Uh, as I understand it, the Commission has laid out its stall, maybe, waiting maybe for the member states to confirm or, or not in a couple of weeks' time, about the, the kind of, basically co this idea that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, whereas the British government might be saying, well, let's do this not so much in a piecemeal way, but let's try and compartmentalise different aspects of any negotiations going forward. Where, where, where do we stand? What is your view on the, on the so-called governor's aspects of phase two?
1: So, you're right, the UK definitely wants it to do sector by sector or area by area, with the principal focus on goods. What the EU wants is to have an overarching framework which will tie in the different sectors underneath. And that overarching framework also goes by the name of governance framework. And what the EU wants is that there should be a single means of dispute resolution, i.e. if things go wrong, how do they get sorted out? And the EU wants a single vehicle for dispute resolution across all of the areas. If you have in your mind's eye a picture of a house, Um, with the roof over the top and that's what the governance mechanism, is. when the EU talks about governance mechanism, that's what they're talking about. Um, The UK says no we don't want that, we want different governance mechanisms for each of the pillars, sectors underneath, so a different governance mechanism to sort out problems with goods, a different governance mechanism to sort out problems with services and so forth.
0: Right. Well, I want to ask you something as well, which is maybe not strictly related to phase two per se, and and some people might say the ship has passed. But you are an expert, amongst many other things, in the area of free movement of people. Um, that was one of the many casualties of of the, of the UK's departure from the EU. Could you give me just uh, your views uh, as we currently stand in the UK about how damaging uh, is the absence of free movement of people now to the British economy?
1: So I think we need to do it in stages. Um, stage one is that at the moment we're in transition and so free movement of persons continues right. and anyone who arrives from the EU before the end of this calendar year will be covered by the free movement provisions and will then also be entitled to apply for settled or pre-settled status. So free movement ends officially on the um, 1st of January 2021 in the absence of any extension of the transition period. And then the UK says it's going to introduce its new immigration system, this much vaunted Australian points-based system. But although the government intends to try and get that through the parliament in this current session, of course much depends on what goes into the future trade agreement about mobility matters right. as they're called going forward. Now if you look at what the Commission has put in its draft negotiating mandate, it's pretty thin on mobility issues. And Is that
0: deliberate because they had nothing else to, to it say? Ma-
1: it absolutely, it may be because they know that the UK won't reciprocate because right. the UK wants free movement to come to an end. The paradox of course is um, if you look at uh, the opinion polls now, mobi- uh, free movement has really absolutely declined as an issue of great importance to the public Now, that may be because they actually think that um, the government is finally getting a grip on immigration issues and therefore they're much less worried about it. But it is quite remarkable. How the public opinion has changed quite so dramatically since 2016.
0: Because immigration is going down, or because people are getting used to the idea, of maybe thinking more about what immigration means to the EU economy. It's, to difficult, the British, it's, British it's, economy. it's
1: difficult. It's difficult to tell. Certainly, immigration is going down. We know that right. the numbers of EU nationals coming into the UK, um, intending to live and work here, has has dropped dramatically. Um, but it may also be that people are beginning to realise that um, some of the good service they're getting from uh, doctors and nurses and technicians in hospitals where they and their families go is actually being delivered by EU Mm. nationals. And so they're thinking about immigration in a more um, rounded way Mm. than perhaps they'd had the opportunity to before.
0: The former... Perm rep to the EU, um, UK, Perm rep, Ivan Rogers has been saying recently in one of his many lectures uh, that it's a it's a pity that the negotiations seem destined to uh, phase two, going back to phase two Brexit, this talk, Catherine, uh, on these kind of rails, these sort of technocratic rails. There's no, there's no time or energy or appetite to stand back and think in a more broadly of a more strategic um, relationship between the UK and EU going forward. We're already getting stuck into the nitty gritty, the weeds, as they say in the jargon of that. Do, do you agree? with that or just uh, th- th- there needs to be a, a more uh, long-term strategic view on how we uh, cooperate the UK, UK and EU going forward uh, but is it too late as well?
1: <clears throat> it's really problematic because these next phase of negotiations are crucial. They will regulate our relationship with the EU for the next 30, 40 years and yet the level of scrutiny that the issues are getting at the moment is so low now it may be that the public are heaving a collective sigh of relief, and even if they don't quite believe that Brexit has been done, they sort of sense that it—you know—that's yeah. a chapter closed, and right. and for God's sake, can we talk about something else? And I I, I absolutely understand that, and it's not—you know—perhaps it's just nerds like you and I who <laughs> um, are interested in the in in the next phase, but. There is, I think there is a failure to think strategically both on the UK side and on the EU side. Because what the EU has done, and they've been incredibly effective um, in doing this since the beginning, is to take a highly technocratic approach. That's what the EU yeah, is good at. Right. What the EU has really shown great resistance in doing is taking a step back and saying, well, look, there are a number of awkward squad states who will never sign up to the Euro, um, Eurozone project how are we going to manage Mm. our relationship with those states? Now there's of course the UK which is out, but there are other states Mm. which are sort of somewhat mentally Not uh,
0: not in the Eurozone.
1: And not in the Eurozone and also not that engaged. You know, we're looking at perhaps Denmark, Sweden. Mm. And then of course you've got Poland and Hungary, which are essentially um, with their attitudes to the rule of law, beginning to undermine the EU from within. And so the t- the need for strategic thinking about how to manage this rather disparate range of states, not to mention Norway, Liechtenstein, Iceland and Switzerland, which ha- already have their own uh, relationships um, with the EU, means that actually we're going into a very technocratic mm. set of negotiations um, without actually having a, a broader roadmap,
0: and it's too late to, to change course. Yeah.
1: I think it's it is too late at the moment because you know, the deadline is 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 um, approaching fast. There isn't time for deep thinking. Um, the, it's you know all hands to the pump to um, just keep the, the ship afloat, rather than try to work out whether we should be going for a rowing boat or whether <laughs> we should actually be going for something slightly more elaborate,
0: maybe a galleon. Um, but a final question then, Catherine. Uh, I know you not a soothsayer, you're a professor. <laughs> <But> <laughs> some people say <laughs> the same thing. Both. <laughs> well, but where do you think we'll, we'll be at, the UK and EU 27 at the end of this year, December 2020? What what, what will we be talking about? Where, where will the uh, negotiations uh, ended up at?
1: There will be some sort of deal. It might be at the 11th hour but remember it can't be at the 11th hour 59th minute as it was with the article 50 agreement because it may well need to be ratified Mm. by um, not just the EU but a number of uh, all 27 member states and a number of regional parliaments as well. Um, the thinner the trade deal, the less likely that is to happen. But of course, that doesn't resolve a lot of the ongoing problems because the the, the geography and the geopolitics of it all is that we are sitting mm. 26 miles um, from France, you know, and the idea that we can somehow magically transform ourselves into Canada is really for the birds because, you know, Canada is, whatever, 6,000 miles away. So there will be ongoing relationship and ongoing negotiations and a bit like the Swiss who have Right, for in a sort of perpetual and rather grumpy dialogue with the EU. The EU's grumpy with Switzerland because Switzerland has got what the EU sees as a very good deal, but cumbersome with 120 bilateral agreements. And Switzerland are grumpy with the EU because Switzerland see the EU trying to come up with this single governance mechanism, this overarching roof, which the Swiss don't like. And so it's, a, it's a, a grumpy relationship, and I fear that that's where we'll be at in the start of 2021.
0: So there'll be some kind of conclusion by the end of the year, but it'll carry on uh, under regular so re- review processes for, for forever. That's the risk. Right. Well, we have to leave it there, Catherine Barnard. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you for your time.